0: If you take your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, our, our text this morning, will begin in verse 8 and extend to chapter 6, verse 9. As you're turning, you may be wondering why these sections are so different. Last time we looked at seven verses, the time before that nine verses, this section much more lengthy. One of the things you'll find if you study Ecclesiastes is commentators have all kinds of discussion and question about how to divide these, these sections up. Uh, where are these thought sections that the preacher Koholeth has for us? Um, as I'm going to argue here in a minute, I think this section does hang together, but this is this is wisdom literature, uh, and so as a result, it, it it's a little challenging to figure out exactly where the lines are drawn. But but the reminder that it's wisdom literature also I think is important for us because because the preacher is trying to tell us what true wisdom looks like. True wisdom c- comes as we see the world as it actually is not as we wish it were. And especially when it comes to money and our our deep and profound love for money, our our worship at times of money, the preacher wants to, to peel the curtain back so that we can see the world as it actually is. But in order to hear what the preacher has for us, to see with the eyes that the preacher has, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do ask you for your help, um, both preacher and listener, uh, studier of your Word. Whoever we might be this morning, we we cannot come to this book and receive spiritual benefit apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are the one who breathed out your word. You are the one who superintended the writers of Scripture, including this preacher in in Ecclesiastes, so that what was written is, in fact, the word of God. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take your word and you would open our eyes so that we might see your goodness and glory and, above all, the gospel in this portion of Scripture. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields, he who loves money, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father, he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Every one Also, to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness And in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Leo Tolstoy's short story, How Much Land Does a Man Need?, we're introduced to the character Packham, who is a farmer whose main frustration is that he does not have, at least according to his calculations, he does not have enough land. As the story unfolds, Packham is doing whatever it takes to increase his holdings. He's swapping land, growing his holdings. He's becoming increasingly rich. There's nothing he won't do to get more land. He'll leave home, leave his family, do whatever it takes. One day Packham hears about a people that are willing to sell land cheap, but they have a, a strange way of making their sale. They they sell land at a thousand nobles excuse me, a thousand rubles a day. The elder of that tribe explained however much you can walk around in one day will be yours. And the price is a thousand rubles a day. But here's the catch. Uh, Pakham had to be back to the starting point by sunset. Otherwise, he forfeited both his money and the land. Well the day came and, and Packham started out. He went three-quarters of a mile and he put down a stake and he went another two miles and he put down another stake. He he went out three miles and he put down another stake. And as he began to plan where he needed to make his turn to the left and make another left to come back to the starting point, he, he noticed that he was he was starting to struggle physically. It was hot. The weight was hard. He was starting to feel exhausted. Um, he was going to turn around, but then as he was going to turn around, he saw this beautiful meadow, just, just a few hundred yards, a quarter mile, just, just in front. Of, he had to have it. And so he included that into his circuit as well, and then finally made the turns necessary to head back to the starting point. But as he turned to the starting point, he noticed the sun was starting to go down fast. Oh, have I blundered trying to take in too much, he wondered. He started to run. And as he did so, he thought, I, I've been too greedy. Now I've ruined it. I'll never get back by sunset. And as he ran, he started to feel worse and worse, like he was going to die. But he didn't stop. The sun continued to sink. He rushed up the hill back to the starting point, And as he made it there, back to his hat, which was the starting point, back to the Bashkirs, the tribe that was selling the land, Packham's legs gave way. He fell forward and he collapsed. And, and when his servant tried to lift him up, what did he find? Packham was dead. And so the servant picked up a spade, and dug a grave for his master, six feet from head to heel, which was exactly the right length, and buried him. And and the answer to Tolstoy's question, how much land does a man need, came simply the length of a grave. The length of a grave. Now it's a powerful story, I, I commend it to you.' It's, it's one since the very first time I read it as a teenager, it, it has stuck with me for 30 or 40 years now, because it has a, a powerful message. It, it aims right at the commitments of our hearts, and it, it actually articulates the same question that the preacher is asking us in this portion of Ecclesiastes, namely, how much, How much is enough? It's this question that researchers at at Boston College um, asked as they spent four years, from 2007 to 2011, studying the so-called super-rich. Their study was sponsored by the Gates and Templeton Foundations. And and the study um, sought to determine exactly how the American wealthy thought and lived, as well as as how and when and, and to what degree They transition from accumulating wealth to to giving wealth away. And as researchers worked with these people, all of whom in 2007 had a minimum of $25 million in assets, as they worked with these people, they found that the respondents, to use their words, were a generally dissatisfied lot whose money has contributed to deep anxieties involving love and work and family. Indeed, they are frequently dissatisfied even with their sizable fortunes. Most of them still do not consider themselves financially secure. For that, they say, it would require another quarter beyond what they presently have in order to actually be financially secure. And so when you ask the super rich, at least in this Boston College study from 2011, how much is enough? They would say, well, more than I've got, or or perhaps, as John D. Rockefeller famously answered when he was asked the question, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Why is that? Why are we so famously unsatisfied, unable to find satisfaction in the good gifts that God gives us? Why is it that we answer the question about how much is enough by taking Rockefeller's words as the voice of our heart just a little bit more, just a little bit more. The preacher here is trying to help us to understand this and he's doing so by by looking with clear-eyed realism at the problem of money. And what we're going to find here is the preacher wants us to see that the problem of money is the problem of worship. The problem of money is a problem of worship. That is to say, we look to money to give us what only God himself can, can do. To give us satisfaction, to give us, to give us approval, to give us security, to give us love and hope. We, we worship money for those things. And yet there's a real problem. Money can't deliver them, or as the Beatles famously put it, money can't buy you love. It also can't buy you satisfaction or hope, meaning, significance. In fact, what the preacher is going to tell us here is that the love of money is not just the root of all evil, rather the love of money and wealth will ruin your life both now and hereafter. And he helps us see this by telling us two ways in which money uh, fails to deal with the deepest longing of our hearts. And the first aspect of the problem of money is that we're, we're not satisfied. We're not satisfied. We're not satisfied. Now, in order to get what the preacher is doing in this section, I, I mentioned that trying to figure out where these sections fall is a little challenging. In order to get with what the preacher is doing with this section, you have to recognize that he's using a, a technical form uh, it's called a chiasm, but I, I tend to prefer to think of it as a sandwich, right? You've got a if you make a good sandwich, you got two good pieces of of, of good bread, hopefully, Um not just wonder bread, but something's got a little substance. And then you come in on the inside and you've got your condiments, your lettuce, tomato, and your other condiments. And then in the middle is what Arby would say, we have the meats, right? So that's how the sandwich is made and that's how this structure works. Um, the preacher first starts on the outside. Chapter 5 verses 8 to 12 and chapter 6 verses 7 to 9 are the outer parts, the, the bread, if you will. And they make the same points about how the worship, our worship of money cannot and does not satisfy our hearts. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. The preacher says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And then chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So part of the problem, the preacher is telling us, or the problem of money, is that no matter how much we have or how little we have, whatever whatever financial gifts we have, we are not satisfied with them. Of course, Part of this dissatisfaction, at least in American life, is, is driven by um, various advertisers um, and those who are promoting various products. Um, this past yesterday, sitting there watching college football over and again, seeing particular commercials, most notably Capital One credit cards, where you could be the hero of every purchase, Samuel L. Jackson tells you. But the example that occurred to me this week as I was thinking about this was the, the Apple event this past week. As you know, every September, Apple has a, a major event where they display their new products. This year's theme was wonderlust. Wonderlust, And the idea was that the newest iPhone or Apple Watch would spark wonder, that our, that our desires would be stirred as a result, our, our lusts, our desires, but but only satisfied when we have this wonderful product. Well, I was paying attention to the Apple event, so I went over to the Apple store, and what what you began to see with the new products was that language like um, euphoria. If you bought the new iPhone, you would experience euphoria. This new product would give you a sense of euphoria. And of course, the ubiquitous language of magical, the new Apple Watch is magical, as though it's something beyond what we can imagine, and is satisfying our deep longing for wonder and delight. Now, of course, at least I know this in my better moments, it, it's, it's ludicrous to believe that an Apple product, or a car, or a TV, or whatever it is, can somehow bring spiritual satisfaction And yet, isn't there something inside of us that kind of vibrates um, in response to the promises that these new products bring? Certainly that was the case for me as I was sitting there refreshing social media, following the Apple event, seeing titanium, a titanium phone. That's crazy. It was amazing. And yet, and yet, I know in my better moments that even the products that money can bring, cannot and will not satisfy. Why, why, why does my heart respond that way? Why, why, why do the vibrations happen? It's because money and the things it can obtain take on almost religious dimensions. Of course, even governments know this. the preacher tells us that, that the king um, is committed to cultivated land, and that's part of the reason why he has supervisors supervising the next layer of supervisors on the way down. Um, our own governments certainly want to incentivize consumers, both in 2008 and 2020, in the aftermath of horrific economic events. It was the great American consumer that was going to pull us out of um, difficult times. And and so we labor and strive. We neglect our sleep and our health. We neglect our families at times in order to have more money, in order to have more things in this never-ending quest to no joy and hope and love and approval, to no satisfaction. We worship our, our money, but what we find ultimately is, the preacher tells us, is that it cannot satisfy but not only can it not satisfy. Part of the problem of money is that we don't we don't enjoy it either. That's the next section in the sandwich. Um, the inner parts, chapter five, verses thirteen to seventeen, and chapter six, verses one to six. The preacher links these together to tell us that that we don't enjoy the gifts that money brings. They, These sections are linked in two ways. Um, Chapter 5, verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Um, Chapter 6, verse 1, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. So the preacher is linking these two sections together with that language. Well, what is the grievous evil? What's the the sick evil, the, the miserable outcome well, it's that those who worship money find that the wonder and delight it promises never comes. They never enjoy their money or the life it promises. And part of that's because they, they don't enjoy it because of, of money lost. Um, in verses chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, you have this, this fascinating situation. Look at it. He says... The preacher says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were capped by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Um, so on the one hand, he's hoarding his riches. That hurts him. But then he invests his riches, trying to manipulate and multiply them. And he loses, he loses that money. That hurts him as well. So whether he he holds on and hoards his money or whether he invests it and loses it, Either way, the the individual who has money can't enjoy it. He he doesn't enjoy it because of money lost. But we also don't enjoy it because of money left. Um, the next thing the preacher says in verse fourteen, and he is the father of a son, it as he has nothing in his hand as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Doesn't that sound familiar? Like Job? Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. Or like the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We brought nothing into the world. And we can take nothing out of the world. And so, like what the preacher describes, our money that we worship is not enjoy because we, we either lose it or we leave it. Uh, we, we don't take our money with us. And because this is the case, because we don't enjoy our money, what we ultimately experience is profound anger. That's what the preacher says in verse 17. All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Isn't that what happens? When financial plans and dreams are thwarted, when the stock market crashes, when our, our retirement plan suffers, we know frustration. We know anger. Because that in which we've trusted, the gods whom we've worshipped, they've, they've let us down. And so we strike out. We strike out against the market. We strike out against our financial planner. We strike out against our trust advisor or whoever it is because they've let us down. And when we feel that sense of anger and frustration because we cannot enjoy the money that we had thought we had coming to us, we, we opine that it's, it would have been better for us if we had never been born. I mean, that's the, the shocking conclusion that the preacher mentions in chapter 6 verses 3 to 6. He, he tells us of that a stillborn child, a horrible tragedy, knows a better lot than the horrible tragedy that comes from giving oneself to worship money and wealth, only to find that it can't deliver satisfaction and joy. It, it, isn't it? is not it any wonder that Jesus Himself says, "No one can serve two masters." for he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The language of service that Jesus uses, what's the language of worship? You cannot worship God and money. You cannot look to God to satisfy your heart's desires. And at the same time, look to money to do the same. One or the other will always predominate. Some of you know what that's like. I mean, some of you have experienced it. You've, you've, you've chased after the good life, what I call living the life. You work and you gain and you spend in cycles of consumption that you cannot afford in order to keep track with others caught up in the same cycle. And while you talk about Jesus, your heart's not really satisfied with him because you're too busy trying to satisfy your heart with money and all the things that it can give you. Others of you know that that's a dead end. You've been down that road. You've tried it. You know that it cannot satisfy you. But the question you may be asking is, is there any possibility of contentment? Is there any possibility of enjoyment in this life? Or is it really all simply the constant pursuit of just a little bit more? Well, the the meat of the the preacher's message, which is right at the center of the sandwich, is a a point about the possibility of contentment. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. He says, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now, we've seen this advice before, and yet it's important for us to hear it again. When, when we have to answer the question, how much is enough, what the preacher wants us to say is, well, what's enough? Well, God's gifts. That's enough. We can be content with God's gifts. As we've seen before in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, our daily bread, what we eat and drink, and the work that we do, that represents a great gift from God. But the problem that we experience in our hearts is when we focus on the gifts rather than the giver of the gift. Rather than focusing on not worshiping the gift, but worshiping the God who gives the gifts. And so because we focus on the gifts, that's when we become addicted to a pathway of satisfying desire, of an addiction of work and and purchase, of Of shopping and endless consumption that that inevitably will depress us and destroy us. But when we we run our eyes from the gift, the food and drink and good work to do, when we we run our eyes from the gift to the giver of those gifts, then we learn that contentment comes when we rest our hearts upon God, when we're content with God Himself. Uh, Ultimately, the preacher. Wants us to see this twice in verse 18 and 19. He he wants us to recognize our lot in life. He wants us to recognize our lot because because God is the one who gives us our lot. He's in control of our lives. And because he's in control of our lives, and he is the one who set our lot, he's the one who gives us our daily bread, he's the one that ultimately that's that's the only true source of delight. It's not the gifts, but the giver. That's the secret. That's the secret of contentment. It's the secret that Paul learned. Sometimes we don't pay attention to this language like we should. That the Apostle Paul, who gave us 13 books in the New Testament, he tells us that he learned something. This is what he says in Philippians 4. He said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Where does the possibility of contentment come from? What's the secret, Paul? What did you learn? I can do all things. Through him, through him who strengthens me. In other words, contentment comes as we live out of a real, vital, continued relationship with Jesus. When we live in and through Christ, we're strengthened to be content with our lot, with our possessions, with our places, whether we have much or whether we have little, and that's because we have Jesus. And when we have Jesus, we have the only place of rest that we'll find in this world. The only one who who could possibly fill the deepest, emptiest parts of ourselves. The only one who can actually still our restless heart. My friend Phil Reichen reminded me of a poem by one of my favorite poet preachers, George Herbert, a poem called The The Pulley. In the poem, Herbert pictures a scene right at the beginning of creation where on the pulley, God has two buckets. Um, one bucket has all of these various blessings, the other bucket at the bottom has rest. And, and this is what God says about these blessings and, and about rest, at least as Herbert puts it. When, when God at first made man, Having a glass of blessing standing by, let us, said he, pour in him all we can. Let the world's riches which disperse lie, contract into a span. So strength first made away, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, Bestow this jewel on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not the God of nature. So both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. Aren't you weary? I mean, aren't you tired of being on the treadmill, trying to acquire and consume, acquire and consume to have what all your friends and neighbors have? Aren't you longing for rest? Friend, if that's you this morning, the only place of rest is a person, and his name is Jesus. And this morning, you can go to him and say, Lord, I'm tired of the rat race. I'm tired of pursuing after money, and all the gifts that this world offers, treating them as the main thing rather than gifts from your hand that you give. I'm tired of all that. I want, I want to find my rest in you. If you would say that this morning, what you'll find is if, if the question then gets asked, how much is enough, you'll be able to answer, I have Jesus, and in him everything else. And because I have Jesus, I have more than enough. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do come offering you everything, because, of course, it's all yours. Everything we have, everything we are, it all, it's all come from your hand. And so, Lord, we say with the songwriter, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Lord, we pray that you would take us all that we are and satisfy us with yourself so that having all that you are, we might be able to leave this place rejoicing that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.